Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian working in the arts. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today we continue our coverage of this year's Governor Arts Award recipients. I'm pleased to speak to this year's recipient for excellence in music, musician Steve Forbert. Steve Forbert was born in Meridian and is one of Mississippi's most accomplished musicians. His career spanned over 40 years and includes 19 studio albums and counting, including his newest album, The Magic Tree, and the remastered release of his 1979 album, Jackrabbit Slim, featuring one of his greatest hits, Romeo's Tune. Steve stays busy today playing music and touring the U.S. and was gracious enough to join us today by phone. Be sure to catch him performing live when you get a chance. You can hear him perform on February 7th at Dooling Hall in Jackson or on February 6th at the Old Capitol Building in downtown Jackson, where he will be performing as a part of his acceptance of this year's Governor's Arts Awards for Excellence in Music. Steve, we're so honored to have the chance to speak with you today. If you would, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the type of music that you play. Well, to make it simple, I always just say I play folk rock. Um, that's the simple answer. That's what kind of got me into all of this. Um, was a folk rock record by the birds called Mr. Tambourine Man, and that really just sort of fired my imagination or drew me in or whatever you want to say. And that that's when I felt like I had to get involved in some kind of playing music. And um, so I say that I play folk rock. Now, what instruments do you play, Steve? Oh, I mainly play guitar like everybody else in the world. <laughs> You toy well with the harmonica, too, is that right? Yes, and and some piano. Oh, nice. Now, let's back up and talk a little bit about kind of where it all started for you. So I'm I'm curious to know if you'd tell us a little bit about your time growing up in Meridian. Well, you'll have to ask a more specific question than that. Um, Sure. Can you? Yeah, of course. Um, Why don't you tell me a little bit about your early music experiences um, in Meridian? Is that where you first took up music? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like I just said. I I always liked songs and uh, was uh, often in attendance at First Baptist Church where I heard those hymns. That, that that was of interest to me. Those are such beautiful melodies. Uh, things like uh, Holy, 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 or On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand. Or The hymns were, were, were such nice melodies, and I was listening to the radio, and ever since I can remember, I don't, I don't know, the first records I remember were in the 50s, you know, I think maybe Peggy Lee's Fever or... And then, of course, uh, all through the the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons and pop radio. And then the Beatles sort of blew open a new era and the Rolling Stones followed that. But like I say, when I heard the birds playing folk rock, something about that just sort of tipped me from listening and pretending to play to actually getting a guitar at TV's Melody Music and learning to play. 
Oh, that sounds that sounds wonderful. So, um, tell me a little bit about um, your parents. What what um, what did they do growing up? Well, my dad was um, was uh, running the 186th Tactical Reconnaissance Group for the uh, Air National Guard, and um, my mother was involved in a number of things, including the Symphony and Meridian. The Meridian uh, at that time had a symphony orchestra, which was pretty good for a town of uh, less than 50,000 people. Right. And uh, my mother was also involved in some speech and hearing center uh, efforts at, in Meridian. And um, my mother played piano, and that uh, that we had a piano in the house, and she played I know that you uh, moved from Meridian and, and headed to New York City at a at a fairly young age. Um, what made you decide that you were going to move to New York? Um, stuff I was reading about. I wanted to go somewhere and try to make it, you know, in music. And um, New York City was starting to catch fire again. They had been a major music pop music center in the 60s of course was uh the love and spoonful and you might even say the velvet underground although Mm -hmm. they weren't popular but uh you know in the brill building and neil diamond and of course simon and garfunkel and bob dylan and but um then there was i was too young for that but in the mid 70s the ramones and patty smith was starting to get some attention as a new thing out of new york city and it just seemed exciting to me i didn't play any kind of a punk rock music or what became to be known as new wave but i just thought there were clubs up in new york city and if bad came to came to worse you you could sing in the streets and um actually that's the way it went i, I auditioned a lot in, in the clubs but it took a while so I did some street singing, too, and that was okay. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your time uh, busking on the street. Um, was that, h- how was that for you? Um, I'm sure it was challenging in its own right. Were you playing in subways? That's what I'm imagining. I tried the subways a few times, but um, what I mainly recall was uh, nice weather outdoors in Greenwich Village. And um I also wrote a song once about singing in Grand Central Station. Okay. Well, um, I'm interested in uh, your transition from kind of performing on the street to performing with headliners uh, like the Talking Heads and playing at uh, CBGB's. Uh, what was that transition like um, for you? I mean, that's that's quite a jump, so I'm sure there's a story there. Well, the story is just trying everything you can. Uh, if something might be an opportunity, you give it a shot. So I've been singing in some of the more folky places like Folk City, Kenny's Castaways, and The Bitter End. And uh, one day I just said, okay, well, um, I need more. Maybe I maybe I should try CBGBs. I'll go over there and see if they like what I'm doing. So um, I, I'm, I should tell you at this point that I wrote a memoir and and put it out about a year ago. It's called Big City Cat, and um, all of these tales are in that book, and it describes, in, you know, in, in some detail of this whole process. So uh, it's called Big City Cat, My Life in Folk, in folk Rock. 
big city cat my life in folk rock. But I went into CBGBs and I got lucky because uh, they weren't real busy one afternoon and the sound man, Charlie Martin, gave me a listen and he got he got the uh, owner, Hilly Crystal, to give me a listen and they put me on stage for a few shows and I'm glad to have been a part of it. Very glad. Now, I know you shared management with the Ramones. Was there ever an opportunity that you guys got to got to play together or got to know one another at all? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Ramones were so different from me. Um, I knew them in passing at the management office and all that. And uh, Tommy, the drummer, I always found to be quite approachable. But I, I... didn't pal around much with the Ramones. The Ramones wore black with their, uh, you know, uh, uh, jeans with the knees out and all that. And they had their scene, and they were they were the Ramones. And uh, I was just a cat from Mississippi on my own with uh, writing folk rock songs. And um, so uh, I kind of gave them their space, you know what I'm saying? I, I, Joey was easy to get along with, and I, I, I took a liking to Tommy. He was kind of a regular guy, but, uh, you know, um, yeah, that's about all I can say. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I know our listeners who followed your career um, would be curious about that, so I just wanted to ask you about your time um, with them, having shared management with them. So. Um, then were you able to find other folk rock artists um, kind of in that scene as you transitioned, um, kind of more playing the styles of music that you played? Well, I spent a year, you know, um, paying my dues and taking every opportunity to play, as I said, in the clubs and on the streets and everything. And I made a lot of friends in, in Greenwich Village, but a lot of those friends were were more the what you might call folk rock and folky cats. You know, um, I had a great time for a year and a half meeting other singer-songwriters and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, there were, were, were just great experiences, and there were people from all over the country still trying to play their acoustic guitars and write songs and get a break. And... Um, it was just like a candy store for me because that's exactly what I wanted to do, and you could learn so much. And it was a, it was a great place to be at that time, especially when the weather wasn't brutally cold. Sure. <laughs> well, I know that um, particularly uh, when you when you came on the scene, um, I know you've been asked about this before, but um, that you were dubbed the New Dylan. So I'm curious, uh, you know, what effect that had on you and your music. You know, did you find yourself subconsciously becoming more like him or different than him due to that comparison? I wouldn't say it had any effect on my music at all. It's something I tried to play down because it was not something I took literally or put any stock in at all. And by the time they said that about me, it was already a cliche that had been said about a number of other singer-songwriters. So it was really just a uh, thing for the press and it was something that they could say that, well, you know, in all honesty, it might have made people interested in me who liked Bob or who liked singer-songwriters, who uh, people who liked, you know, songs with a lot of accent on the lyrics. So that wasn't a bad thing, but 
I didn't, I, it didn't change what I was already doing. That was, that was me. I came from Mississippi with a style and I toughened it up a bit in Greenwich Village. And, um, I was just on my own trajectory. Right. And you, you sounds like, I mean, you were very much able to find your own way and, and have your own sound. So, yeah, I was just curious. I, I can only imagine being put in that position of, of being compared to someone uh, when you do, like you said, have your own unique uh, voice. Yeah, to me, it was just a, a, a catchphrase in the press. It was already rather a tired cliche. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different Mississippians. Today I'm talking to musician and Governor's Arts Award recipient Steve Borbert. If you're listening to our live broadcast, you just heard Steve's hit, Romeo's Tune, which was recently remastered and released 35 years after its original recording. Um, So, Steve, let's talk a little bit about um, the anniversary of Jackrabbit Slim. We were talking on the break um, about uh, the unique way that it's packaged and and how you have uh, remastered that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the anniversary? Well, yes, and I, I must correct you. Actually, it's 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 been forty years, um, and we decided to um, make make a special occasion of that fortieth anniversary. So, uh, a real talented guy got the master tapes from from me and uh, remastered the record and found that there was a, a fuller sound to be had. So I'm kind of happy about that. It sounds uh, there's more detail and fidelity in this new vinyl record we pressed. And it's like they do now. It's on 180-gram vinyl, and it's going to be... We we did 500 red ones for Christmas, and and those were a limited edition, and the rest will be be green. So there you go. And we've got some nice packaging. Uh, Took took special care to make the, the... artwork nice and uh, sharp and colorful. So it's a nice thing. People can order it from steveforbert.com if they like. And um, I think it's out there in some other outlets, but that's a nice thing. Uh, The record has held up well, and I'm proud of it. Well, I'm curious about uh, to know a little bit more about your experience uh, with that, the commercial success of that album, as well as your hit, one of your hits, excuse me, Romeo's Tune, um, and the impact of your other big hit albums like um, Alive on Arrival um, and others. What was the what was the experience with that that big first commercial success that you experienced? Well, that's what it was. Uh, it was an opportunity to have a have an audience and to have some demand for live shows and to get in a tour bus and put a put a touring band together. I couldn't just go around anymore just as a guy with a guitar. I'd, I'd been through that and gotten to that point. 
So then it was, uh, if you will, you know, the rock and roll dream, going all over the place and um, having a lot of fun, perhaps too much fun, and uh, writing songs and just uh, doing what I'd set out to do. So that that's the way it was for quite a while there. And um, after about nine years, I decided to move to Nashville because it was just time for a change. Um, everything I went to New York City suspecting and kind of sensing where it did come to fruition and all the, the excitement of the new wave scene and all that stuff that happened. But then it was time to to see what was happening in Nashville. So that's what I'm thinking now, you know. That was nine years of a great time in New York City, and then there started to be a lot of singer-songwriter activity in Nashville. And how is it, how do you think that move has influenced um, any, or has it influenced any change in your music? Well, honestly, these moves... I don't think they affect my music. Um, the music, um, I just kind of take what I do to these different locations. Nashville was going through a time when um, suddenly it was attractive because people like uh, Roseanne Cash was having hit country records. That was nice. And um, you had everybody from Lyle Lovett to Mary Chapin Carpenter, to Nancy Griffith, to um, uh, Foster and Lloyd. Steve Earle came out of that. Um, a lot of things were happening that, that were of interest to me. And so I just sort of took what I had been doing and moved to Nashville to just see what that would be like. It was an American music scene, and I related to it a lot. And I wound up living there for 27 years. Where do you live now, Steve? Uh, then, after a while, I moved to the New Jersey shore, pretty near Asbury Park, which is where I'm speaking to you from now. Mm-hmm. And you're currently so on tour? Kind of fa- well, I'm always on tour. This is kind of phase four. There was Meridian, New York City, Nashville, and now the Jersey Shore. Um, but it's all about the music, and there's a lot of places to play for what I'm doing, you see, up here in in the Northeast. I, I just did a show in Portland, Maine, and Northampton, Mass., and Shirley, Massachusetts, this last weekend. I'm fixing to do Washington, D.C., Asbury Park, and Annapolis, Maryland, this weekend. So I don't really say that I'm on tour because I just uh, work for a living, and I play as often as possible, and uh, usually on the weekends. People don't really go out much on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, so um, it's it's a nice thing. It it kind of uh, it allows me to to get around, and, and this is a good location. But I've also just finished shows in uh, Chicago and in um, Madison, Wisconsin, two weeks ago. So that's kind of what it's like. It's not a tour. It's just um, a way of life. Right. Well, that's inspiring, um, and I hope it is to a lot of musicians out there. We, I know we're looking very forward to you performing in February um, as part of the Governor's Arts Awards. Um, so we'll be so happy to have you back in Mississippi 
Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, the kind of your your connection to Mississippi? And one of the ways that you've you've shown that is um, I know you did a tribute album uh, about uh, with Jimmy Rogers um, songs. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to do that and um, you know kind of the process along the way? Well, Jimmy Rogers is a major figure in American music, and um, Ken Burns recently paid a wonderful tribute to him, did, you know, uh, featured him as one of the main chapters in his series on country music. He did a great job, I thought, mm-hmm. and even included some photographs I'd never seen before, so that was great. Um, he did a good job with Jimmy Rogers, and I've, I grew up with his music, and as I started to get older and investigate folk music and uh, roots music and blues and the roots of country music, I, you know, traced it all back to, wow, Meridian and Jimmy Rogers. So um, I'm a big fan of Jimmy Rogers. And after, you know, after I got started making records, I always said, if I'm from Meridian and I'm going to be playing folk rock and American music, uh, Americana music, it's come to be called. It wasn't when I started, but I just thought, well, you know, I needed to, to acknowledge my uh, uh, connection and appreciation for Jimmy Rogers, and man was a genius, I think. And I did a tribute record for him. I'm happy to say it was nominated for a Grammy. That was great. And um, I still like to listen to it. I think we did a, a, we did a good record in tribute to Jimmy from my hometown and so I sort of grew up with some of his nephews and cousins. Well you mentioned this earlier um, in our conversation but especially for those just joining us I know you recently um, wrote a memoir uh, called Big City Cat My Life in Folk Rock and uh, yeah there's one thing I should say though I'm sorry I I think it would be better phrased to say that I'm from Jimmy Rogers so (laughs) Sure, sure. That's probably a little more more logical. Oh, okay, sure. Go ahead. I'm we'll give you. credit where credit's due, absolutely. But you're you're both um, wonderful in your own right. Um, I was just asking about your memoir, Big City Cat, My Life in Folk Rock. Um, and I read that your memoir was originally conceived as a stage play. Is that right? Well, yeah. Yeah, I thought that it might be a good idea to take a a number of songs of mine and and see if they couldn't be um, sort of connected together to form a story and possibly a stage play. A lot of people are trying that these days, and I've thought about trying it. It's, it's a, a huge undertaking, and I'm told that plays that actually ever do make it to Broadway, which is an extreme, you know, an extreme situation. A lot of uh, that's the top of the line, and it it, t- it takes the average place seven years to make it to Broadway if it ever makes it anywhere. And um, so my my idea there just kind of it got me started putting together a few memories and stories. And the next thing I knew, it was turning out to be like, well, I can write a book. I don't know if I can put seven years into struggling to hopefully get a play. Uh, you know, successful uh, wherever it might be performed. 
And so I let that go, and, and I found that instead I was just going to take what I'd started and make, make, make a, a little more modest effort and just make a memoir out of it. Well, I'd encourage our listeners to check out um, your full memoir, but would you be willing to share a story from that, from that with us, something that um, you, you might find particularly interesting or maybe something that um, you think our listeners um, would like to know? Well, I would say that uh, once I was in CBGB's, um, I was hanging out there a lot. I could, it, I'd hit a point to where I could go in any time I wanted to as sort of one of the performers there. So I went in there, and um, somebody pointed out through the crowd a, a, a girl. They said, oh, look, there's that girl. She's a critic for the Village Voice, and that was a very important music paper at the time, uh, in New York City, it was the go-to paper for what's happening, what's going on around town. So I thought it'd be great to meet a, a real-life rock critic. You know, I was just a kid from Mississippi operating on my own there. So I thought that would be great. I went over and said hello to her and struck up a conversation, thinking maybe, you know, maybe I could get her to check out what I was doing and write something about uh, you know, this kid from Mississippi, and she, I, I was talking to her, and and after a minute, I said, well, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this is a, a rock critic for the Village Voice. I went, so I thought, no, I'll ask her a question about what, hey, what do you like? What are you listening to in music? And she looked straight at me, and she said, I'm into Roy or Bison. <laughs> and my head just... My brain just kind of did. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it. I, the thoughts went through my mind. Well, you know, I'm just a kid from Mississippi. This is New York City. This is CBGB. She writes for the Village Voice. Am I? I mean, all my life I've heard of Roy Roy or Roy Orbison, but can she be right? Is it or Bison? And then then the thought came to my head. Nah. <laughs> No, Steve, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> so I thought, huh, you know, maybe these rock critics aren't all they're cracked up to be. Uh, I've met some that were very knowledgeable, but that was such a funny story to me, you know, yeah. along the way. Oh, of course, especially Roy because you, you questioned yourself for just a moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I questioned myself for two moments. I'm like, you know... We, have I heard this wrong all my life down in Mississippi from every DJ I've ever listened to? <laughs> nah. <laughs> no, we know something. Thank you very much. That's right. Well, like I said, I really encourage our listeners to pick up this memoir. That was a great teaser story um, for, for everyone to, to really dig in and hear stories just like that. Now, I know that you released your memoir alongside your album, The Magic Tree. What made you decide to release those two in tandem? It was just coincidental. The book was covering 60 years or so of my life, and um, it gave me the opportunity to look back through the um, recordings I'd made and take a few things that had never been released and and um, dust them off and and put them together um, on, on, on one album, The Magic Tree, um, that would kind of go through every uh, 
the, the recording span from 1985 to what was then, I guess, where are we now, 2020? I guess mm-hmm. it was 2017 when we finished it. Maybe 2018, I can't remember. But but anyway, spanning all those 35, 40 years there, 30 years. So, um, so it became a good reason to to include several things through the years you know it could go as a as a counterpiece to or as a partner to the to the book so that all worked out kind of logically i see so um so so that our listeners know as as steve's describing this is a collection of songs um that were some of previously recorded demos and new backing tracks is that is that the majority of them well, about four of them are brand new, and um, one was a re-recording of a song that came out in 2012 called uh, "That'd Be All Right," which I thought could make there could be a. I wanted to do a better recording of it, but yeah, like you said, we took some recordings. Some of them done in Meridian, some of them done in clubs around um, here, there, and and we added some other instruments to them and all. I I love the record. It came out really good. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative people from Mississippi. Today I'm talking with musician Steve Forbert. If you're listening to our live broadcast, you just heard a song off Steve's most recent album, The Magic Tree. So Steve, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Paul Davis, a musician also um, from Meridian. I know he's been an inspiration to you. Yeah, that's true. Um when I was coming up as a teen, as, as we've mentioned, Jimmy Rogers was a, was a, a, a known figure in Meridian and part of our uh, town's, you know, uh, reputation and uh, what you could say about Meridian, birthplace of uh, America's blue yodeler, Jimmy Rogers. But um, Paul Davis was... Uh, a little older than me, and he had a group called the Endless Chain in Meridian. We used to see him. He played. He had the, the Endless Chain played dances at my uh, junior high school, stuff like that. And Paul started making some recordings for Malico over in Jackson, and had a regional hit record. Uh, some records I really liked. A couple of them that, out of Malico. And was signed to uh, Bang Records in New York City. And um, I looked up to Paul. Uh, he was a local musical hero. And um, then it was really great when he went on to have uh, hits on the radio like 65 Love Affair and Cool Night. And uh, the biggest one was I Go Crazy was on the Billboard charts for quite some time. Held a record for a while of, t- of length of time on the Billboard Hot 100. So um, I became friends with Paul, and he he tried to help me out along the way and let me stay at his place once uh, in Atlanta for a few days. He was a terrific guy, and I got to know him more uh, when he lived in Nashville. And 
and I lived in Nashville, but a lot of people from from Meridian, of course, and, and all around Mississippi know Paul Davis, and um, it's just good to mention Paul. He he uh, passed away a few years ago, I think at age 60, um, but uh, he did some great work. There's a song of his called Ride em Cowboy, which is an amazing story song that Paul wrote. Um he just did some 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 he was a great recording artist uh, songwriter and uh you know a, a real talent from from meridian who would you say are some of your other musical um influences or musical heroes well i've mentioned jimmy rogers was truly heroic i mean this was a guy that was dying of tuberculosis the whole time um well the the, the few years that he was uh, a national superstar in country music but um i like louis armstrong i think he's one of the greatest people america's ever produced you know fabulous what do you like better you know louis armstrong singing or his trumpet playing now, he's known as a trumpet player but but uh you know this is a guy that could take a song like mame or hello dolly from broadway shows and make them top five records on the am radio uh, he's a favorite of mine, and uh, the list just goes from there. Just be where to go. I mean, um, I really like uh, the Allman Brothers Band, and I listen a lot to Van Morrison these days. Going back through his catalog, it, but the the list is endless. Sure. Well, I'm curious. You know, you've you've spent a career as a singer songwriter. Um, you know, selfishly as a singer songwriter myself, I. I just have to ask how you how you approach songwriting. Can you tell me about your process for doing that? And I know it's it may be different for different ones, but do you find yourself drawn to a certain process when you sit down to write a song? Well, it's really catch as catch can. You get these ideas, and for me now, I have so many distractions, which is uh, the way it is later in life. You're a lot different from when you're in your twenties with 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 few few things to distract you, but uh, dare I say, music, beer, and girls, <laughs> in my case. Uh, but, you know, as you go on, you, you just, life gets more complicated, so you're just not as focused. So I kind of just get something and work work on it for quite some time now, so a couple of weeks, a few weeks, and uh, I just sort of subconsciously work on them and keep kind of chipping away at them, because I'm still very very uh, interested in, in songwriting and still trying to write the best songs I can. Do you start with the music or do you start with the lyrics? You know, it it varies. Uh-huh. If I get something musical I think is good, then I'll go with that. If I got some kind of a song idea that I think is good, lyrically, I'll go with that, you know. So you you just go with whatever you can get. So, Steve, in 2017, you were the focus of a tribute album. I can only, I can't even start to imagine what that's like. Um, An American Troubadour, the songs of Steve Forbert, um, where covers of your songs were performed by 21 artists. So what was that experience like to to have um, artists making a tribute album? Well, it was very nice. Everything about that's good, and... um it was nice to be at this for several decades and have something like that happen. Very rewarding. 
Well, I have to ask you. Um, uh, this is this is just a. Uh, Something I a rumor that I that I found in my research of you, Steve. So I just have to ask: Is it true that um, you had a cameo appearance in Cindy Lauper's "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" video? Yeah, I was in there at the end, um, playing the role of Cindy's boyfriend. I think they put me in a sport jacket and a bow tie. <laughs> so if anyone wants to catch a cameo um, of you, it can pull up that video on YouTube. So. Steve, what's what's next for you? I know, like you said, it's a way of life. You're playing music. Is there anything on the horizon? Any ideas you're you're tossing around and projects you're starting? Well, thank you. Um, I'm glad you asked that. I have almost completed uh, a collection of eleven songs that um, are favorites of mine. After all this time, I finally slowed down a little bit to just do what, what we would call a cover record. And I think it'll be out in April. And that's been a labor of love, as they say. Um, selecting from all of my, you know, dozens and dozens of favorite songs, um, narrowing it down to these 12 or so. And, and so that's going to be a lot of fun. It's got everything from Frankie and Johnny of... Uh, uh, a take on that, which was uh, first heard, I first heard by, you guessed it, Jimmy Rogers, <laughs> all the way to a song by the Kinks uh, from um, one of their records called Everybody's in Showbiz, all the way to a Judy Collins, song Judy Collins made popular called uh, Someday Soon. And um, we even recorded um, Elton John's famous Your Song. So, this is coming out in the spring, and uh, I look forward to, to putting that, that out there and letting people hear these songs if they've never heard them and hear them again if they know them well. Well, I just want to thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and everyone, be sure to check out Steve Forbert performing live in Jackson on February 7th at Dooling Hall or join the Mississippi Arts Commission on February 6th at the Old Capitol Building in downtown Jackson, where Steve will perform as part of his acceptance of this year's Governor's Arts Awards for Excellence in Music. You can also find out more about Steve and his musical journey at steveforbert.com. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Be sure to tune in each week for the Mississippi Arts Hour, a co-production of MPB Radio and the Mississippi Arts Commission. As a special treat for our listeners, please enjoy more music coming up from my guest, Steve Borbert. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.